Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church today. Let's begin now by praying together. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you again for all the blessings that you have given us. We thank you, Father, that you created us. We also thank you, Father, that when we fell as a race, that you had a plan for rescuing us through your son, Jesus Christ, that he would have to die, and he did. He was buried, and on the third day, you raised him from the dead so that whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ as your Savior has eternal life. Father, this morning, we want to pray for all the needs of the saints in our congregation, in our country, and around the world. We want to pray particularly for those Christians in, in persecuted countries. We want to pray, Father, for the particularly for the Christian churches that we support. I want to pray this morning in particular for Pastor Adams and his crew and the Healing Hands of Christ um, home. Father, we also pray this morning that we will be able to understand uh, the meaning behind the passage we're going to read this morning, and that after that, the Holy Spirit would give us the ability to recall and the motivation to, to put into practice the things that we've learned. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, you can, you can remain seated because um, you can just listen to a song this morning that I'm going to play, and the lyrics are on. It's a little challenging to sing, so at least for today, I'm going to just allow you not to have to sing it, but you, maybe next time we do it, we will. It's one of my favorite songs. I'm sure a lot of you know it, too. Good morning again, everybody. We now have a signed contract to lease our space. And now everybody knows, not just here in person, but on the Internet, because I turned my microphone on. It, the street address is 3134 North Federal Highway in Lighthouse Point. 3134 North Federal Highway in Lighthouse Point. It's about a mile and a half south of our, of our old building, the church that we had on Federal Highway. This one, though, is on the east side of the highway. It's the left side if you're driving south. If all goes to plan, we should be have our facility ready for our use by the week of May 22nd to the 26th. Um, please pray for that to come about, um, for all who will be bearing the burden of the work involved. We do expect to have um, a need for help as we get closer, and we'll let you know about that as well. Also this morning, I would um, like to let you know that, yep. We are going to be keeping our current mailing address for quite some time. So just to make that. Okay. Thanks for telling me. Yeah. As Mark says, we're going to be keeping our mailing address, which is a, a post office box or a number. Yeah, it's a sweet, yeah. a sweet number for a while. So you don't have to worry about that. That'll stay the same. But this is where we'll meet together um, uh, real soon, as soon as everything is put in place for that for the building. I also want to give a schedule note this morning to give you a heads up. Um, I'll be taking time off in at the end of May and in mid-June, okay, for, for personal things. Um, not bad things, good things. So, but I want you to give you the dates. Um, Thursday, May 25th, we won't have our Bible study that, that day. Sunday, May 28th, okay, so those two in May. And then Thursday, June 22nd, Sunday, June 25th. And Thursday, June 29th. So there'll be two Sundays and three Bible studies over the next two months. 
And I believe these are also on the calendar on our website so that um, you can also access it there um, as well. Okay, let's begin with the message this morning. Please turn to John chapter 13, verse 21. John chapter 13, verse 21. Our title today comes from, of course, this passage, and the title is, And It Was Night, And It Was Night, John chapter 13, starting in verse 21. I'll read it now. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit, and he testified, and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. So he, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I will dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, He took and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box. But Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. When Jesus had said this, he was talking about the fact that there would, he talked earlier about there would be one who would strike him on the head, lift up his heel against him. And then he talked about the fact that whoever, whoever receives the one I send, sends me. Receives me, whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. So I believe, I'm thinking with that, he started thinking about the fact that of the 12 there, his one he wouldn't be sending. And so at that point, he started to talk about the fact that he was going to be betrayed. He had said this before, but here, um, at this very intimate setting, the night before he's going to the cross, he wanted to make sure the other 11 understood that this was going to happen so they could make the preparations that they needed. John 13, 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and he testified and he said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. So here, Jesus leaves absolutely no doubt that not only is he going to be betrayed, but the betrayer was right there in front of him, present at this special meal. And the disciples were in shock. They, they, didn't, they, they, they knew he had said that he would be betrayed. They knew vaguely that he was talking about the fact that he would go to Jerusalem and then his enemies would, would destroy him. They knew those things, but they didn't realize that it would be one of the twelve. Who would, who would turn Jesus over to his enemies. And as we saw last Sunday, 
Mark and Matthew also recorded the reaction of the other 11 disciples. One by one, they said to one another, as well as to Jesus, surely not I. Let's continue now in verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him, and he said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I will dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now here for the first time, John uses the expression, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He will use this description four times in total. He's the only one of the four gospel writers who uses this description to, to mean one of, the, one of the 12. Last week, we've read all four of those passages. And the fact is that when you compare scripture with scripture, it's pretty likely, very likely, almost certain that it's John, the writer of the gospel, the son of Zebedee, whom he's speaking about. Now, I assume that most, if not all of you, have seen the famous painting of The Last Supper by the Renaissance painter Leonardo da Vinci. But let me refresh your memory anyway. There it is. And whether we whether we are conscious of it or not, this image is the one that most people think about when they think about The Last Supper. Unfortunately, while it's a fantastic painting, the layout is completely wrong. And the clue is right in our passage with the word reclining. Reclining means lying down, right? And, and none of these people in Da Vinci's painting are, are doing that. They're all seated or standing. Well, we came upon this during our series in 1 Corinthians. The supper was most likely held in a special private room called the triclinium. Not the dry cleaners, the triclinium. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about it just so you can get a better sense so we can enter into what was going on. It was far more intimate than what Leonardo da Vinci painted. Um, This would be a special private room. Let me show you a picture of it. I don't know how easily you can see that, but I hope you can see there are three couches. I hope you can see that it's it's a private room. And that while it's in this, while it's in the form of a rectangle, one of the sides is missing. Okay? And, and that's because the people who had the food would bring it to these tables. Now, the people who were attending the meal would actually be lying down on these couches, sort of perpendicular to the couch itself. I'll show you a picture about that in a moment as well. So, so the guests reclined on the couches. And it's on their left side. Anybody want to think about why they would be on their left side? Yeah, because most people are right-handed. And it would leave that, that hand and arm free to take the food and the drink. Now, unfortunately, I don't know if I could be one of the apostles. Well, I certainly could not be. But if I were alive at that time, I couldn't be because I'm left-handed. So I don't know what I would Yes. We only have the address of 3134 on the screen. We have no other images. Hmm. Is that true, Mark? Reshare. Reshare, okay. Yeesh. 
The guests be on couches on their okay. left side. Can you go back to the other images? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. I think that's okay. Right. Yeah. We okay. So up till here, this is review from last week. But here's the picture I was talking about. Again, I think most people recognize this as the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper. Well, John, we'll get to that. But John is to the right of Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so, so it was quite different, a lot more intimate than what this shows. And again, it was held in a private room called the Triclinium. The Triclinium. And again, here's a picture of it. Right. Again, there's there's three couches. Um, you can kind of see that you could probably fit about four people on each of those, right? They were lying this way. And that's good because there's 12 apostles. So they could all fit. And again, the, the guests reclined on those couches and on their left side. So like this. So their right, their right hand would be free to take the food and the drink. So I want to show you a more likely layout for The Last Supper. Okay, look, probably a lot more like that. Can you see that? How there's, how they're sitting, they're sitting around a table. They're leaning on their left side, and um, you've got, you got. This is. I'm going to talk about where they were all seated in a minute. I just wanted you to see the fact that they were how what it meant to be reclining on those couches. And again, you can see that their right hand and their right arm would be free to take take the food and the drink. So this was, this is what they closer to what the actual Last Supper looked like. And I hope you can see this is a lot more intimate. See, a lot of people are closer to one another than that long table, right? And that's important to understand. The reason I'm taking a moment to show this is that it was in this setting that Jesus reveals the fact that one among them is a traitor. So it was sort of an intimate family meal. And then they received this news and they're all shocked. And in this way, they can all see one another. And they're all looking at one another, wondering, what's, this was the last thing that they, that they thought was going to happen at this special, intimate Passover meal. Okay. So the Jews had adopted this. This was actually a Greek practice. Probably the Romans before. Um, I have that backwards. The Romans afterwards. The Romans got it from the Greeks of reclining. And it was only for special meals. It wasn't for dinner every night. Okay, it was only a special time when they would gather in this way and, and sit in that, well, lie down in that way. And the Passover supper turns out to be one of those special times. Now, the first Passover was had to be eaten in great haste and a great hurry because they were going to they were going to leave. And then Moses was going to lead them out of the, before they before the Egyptians could get them. Right. So there was a they ate it in great haste. But now in the celebration afterwards, they they took pains to say, we're going to be relaxed and we're going to be unhurried now because we've already been delivered from Moses. All right. So let's talk about the layout just for a minute. Three couches, rectangular form. Now I know rectangular is four sides, not three. But again, one side was missing so that the service could come in and bring the food and drink to the guests. There were three places in this layout that held the most honor. Of course, as the host, Jesus was the most honored guest. 
the other two places that held the most honor were to be the, the immediate right and the immediate left of Jesus. Immediate right. So this is in some way what it probably looked like in terms of where people were seated. And this is what this is what Calvin was asking a moment ago. So on the left hand side, you have Jesus and then you have John on his right and Judas on his left. By the way, it was the one to the left that was the honored guest, the most honored guest, which is interesting. And in this depiction, we're not sure about this, but you have Peter right across from John. And that would be the easiest configuration for him to be saying, hey, hey, ask him, right? right? He's right across from him. So they, so in any event, this was probably how they were seated that night. And again, it's most likely here that John reclined to his right and Judas reclined to his left. By the way, this is the most natural way for John to have leaned back on Jesus' bosom. But if you picture it, John is like this. Jesus is next to him. So all he would need to do would be to lean over a little more. And he'd be able to literally whisper in the ear of Jesus. And so I wanted you to understand that as well. All right, let's continue on our passage. John chapter 13, verse 23. John 13, 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And when he had dipped the morsel, he took and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So here we have the disciple Jesus loved, and he was leaning back, and his head again would have been resting on the chest of Jesus. And in this position, he would have been... Soon and very soon. In this position, again, he could whisper his question. Mark, are you able to mute that? I'm trying to get to the list. Okay. So, again, John could whisper into the question that he had. Now, Simon gestures to, to John because he figured he would be the most likely one. If anyone was going to know, it would be John. So Jesus is going to answer the question that John asks. And and likewise, only John would have heard the answer because he was so close. Jesus could whisper to him as well. And that's likely because we're going to we see in this passage that none of them really understood why it would be that Jesus would say to Judas, I want you to go out and I want you to go. Well, he just said, leave me. Right. But the disciples thought, well, maybe he's going because he has the money purse. Maybe he's going to buy buy what's needed for the feast. By the way, the feast that they were talking about, he going out and getting food for, was not the Passover feast, okay? Because they were already there and the food had already been provided, okay? But it was a feast of unleavened bread, which would start the next day. So again, in this position, Jesus could whisper, John could whisper his question into Jesus' ear, and John only John would have heard the answer. Now Simon is the one. Simon Peter is the one who gestures to John to find out who is it that he's speaking about. Now, this was vintage Peter. Okay, 
Peter was impetuous. He was he was always saying things without thinking about it. He was also the most probably enthusiastic. Whatever it was that Jesus was talking about, he wanted in on. He, like for example, when when uh, they were in the boat and Jesus appeared on the water, it was him who just spoke up and said, "Hey, Jesus, can I walk out in the water with you?" So he, that was his personality. But also, Jesus considered Peter to be the leader of the twelve, and he functioned that way. He was part of the inner inner circle of James, John, and Peter, and Peter was definitely the leader. And not only that, but he was the most outspoken disciple. Many times, he's the one who speaks up, um, and 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 um, Jesus recognized that. Not only that, but there were times when what he said to Jesus was bold, inappropriate. Usually, and when he said that, he was way out of line. I want you to see one example of that. Please go to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Peter wanted to know who it was. He probably wanted to know who it was so that he could beat him up. That was another. That was also vintage Peter. He'd be the one that would have the sword and cut out, cut the ear off of a of a, of a slave of, a, of one of the high priests. So, in any event, I want you to see another example of how uh, Peter speaking up and saying things that are clearly inappropriate and way off base. Mark eight thirty one, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter matter plainly. In other words, by the way, he told them way ahead of time. He told them more than once this was going to happen. We human beings have an amazing ability to filter out things that we don't want to hear. Ever notice that? Yeah, you know, you could have all the evidence in the world, but if you're if you're fixed in your beliefs about something, or there's something that you definitely can't deal with, you push it aside, and it has to be what the what the what the disciples were doing when he would say these things. And then Lotus looked verse thirty two again, and he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside. There's Peter again, and began notice this began to rebuke him. Jesus, their master, their Lord, their teacher, he rebukes them. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. But you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Peter, in his impetuous nature, was was saying, no, 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 this isn't going to happen on my watch, Jesus. We are not going to let you go to the cross. He didn't realize at all. Think about it. Jesus was just saying, predicting that this had to happen. But Peter was so much of himself that he's like, you know what? I'm going to convince you, Jesus, not to go that now. And he was rebuked. One of the few times Jesus um, called somebody Satan, by the way. It's pretty. It's a pretty uh, damning st- uh, rebuke, if you think about it. So it's Peter, in our passage today, who prides John to tell him which disciple was going to betray Jesus. Now, Peter thought, Peter actually thought maybe John already knew, right? 
So, and, and the reason he thought that was, again, G- John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So if he was going to tell anybody, it would be John. But, of course, John didn't know yet. And so he had to ask Jesus who it was. Let's go back to John chapter 13, verse 25. John chapter 13, verse 25. Uh, if, if you had to turn the pages to get there, you can come talk to me afterwards. I'll get you a nice bookmark because <laughs> this is where we are. And have been and will be. John chapter 13, verse 25. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. I mean, what, a, what a dramatic moment for John. What an anticipation. What a, what a kind of a, a shock that this is about to be revealed. And again, only John knew that this that he would be the one, that Jesus was going to tip the morsel, which, by the way, to give the morsel to somebody was an expression of honor, friendship, and love. Okay? So if you think about it, right, Jesus was, was going to go into the maximum he could in order to appeal to Judas to call off his plans in any event. He said to John, this is the one for whom I will dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, I mean, you can imagine now John realizing this is about to happen. He is about to reveal to me who the betrayer is. He took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, these are intimate details when you think about it. The the fact that, that the writer of this gospel knew that that, it, that, the, that Jesus would dip the morsel and give it to Judas, and that would be the indication that Judas would be the one who would betray him. In other words, it was an eyewitness testimony of somebody who was there at the supper, namely John. So Jesus dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas. And again, it was a, it was a gesture of friendship. It was, it was saying, I'm your close friend. It was a gesture of honor. We're honoring you at this meal. And love. So Jesus loved Judas to the very end. He never stopped loving him. It was Judas who made the decisions, of course, to turn away from from Jesus and betray him. But now John and only John knows that it's Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who was the disciple who was about to betray Jesus. In other words, Jesus was giving Judas one more opportunity, one more to abandon his vile plan. Now, Jesus knew all about the plan. It's amazing to think about that Jesus understood he had to go to the cross, and yet he's still making an appeal to Judas out of his love for him to call it off. Now, he, he, Jesus understood that if, if, if it wasn't Judas who would betray him, then, then the father would have to find some other way. Jesus didn't want it to be Judas. He did everything he could possibly do to appeal to Judas to to cut this off. Don't do it. And this was the final gesture of affection that Jesus expressed to Judas before finally he had to send him out into the night. By the way, this is the fourth time in the Gospel of John that John speaks of Judas as the one who would betray Jesus. But remember now, he he wrote, wrote this years after, right? And, and for the first three occurrences 
It's in John 6, John 12, and actually earlier here in chapter 13. It was John writing it, reflecting on what had actually happened. So it wasn't, it hadn't been revealed to anybody until here. Okay, that's important to understand, the drama of the moment. I got to say one more thing about the passages where John talks about Judas. He never mentions Judas without, right after that, saying that this was the one who was going to betray Jesus. If you read these, if you read the passages in the Gospel of John where John talks about Judas, he always says this is the one who is going to betray Jesus. All right, let's go back to our passage or continue in it. John chapter 13, verse 27. After the morsel, after this final expression of honor and friendship, and love, what happens? Satan then entered into him. Therefore, because Jesus, knowing all things, knowing that, that now Satan had entered into Judas, he says to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, it's, now if you think about it, it since, since Judas had Satan inside him, Satan entered into him, sometimes we call it possession, Although that's not the word that that the Bible uses for it. In this case, in a sense, Judas and Satan were like one person at that point, right? Because Satan had pretty much taken him over. So when Jesus said, what you do, do quickly, on the one hand, of course, he is talking about Judas. Okay, that's the most natural way of understanding that. But we can also see it as Jesus speaking to Satan and saying, I know your moment is going to come. All right. But what you do, I want you to do quickly. Let's get this over with. Verse 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that (laughs) I could make some observations about uh, who has the money and what ends up happening. But I'll leave that alone. All right. Not all the time, but not all the time. But it's a very big temptation. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Judas took the morsel. Now remember, it's an expression of honor. Think about this. Here's Jesus expressing his love, his friendship, giving ultimate honor. And Judas just basked in it. He says, sure, I'll take the morsel. I mean, it's it's amazing what arrogance and evil in the heart will allow somebody to do. He accepts the honor, but he totally rejects the offer of love. And it's that that instant notice that he agreed to be the willing instrument of Satan. This gives the lie, by the way, to the fact that you know, that um, Satan took him over without his will, okay? That somehow he couldn't, Judas had nothing to do with the fact that he would be the one that would betray Jesus. No, he had everything to do with it. He made the decision. He, By the way, he made decision after decision after decision to come to this point. A lot of people say, well, how could, why does the Bible say that sometimes God hardens people? Because God doesn't harden them at all. Okay, what happens is is people harden themselves in their hearts by one decision at a time to turn away from Jesus, to reject the gospel, 
again and again and again. And then finally, as it were, God gives him over. Okay, if that's what you want, now that's what you'll have. And it's the same thing with Judas. Okay, he made one final decision here, but it was the buildup. Now, after remember, he had already gone to the chief priest and said, I'm willing to turn him over to you. And the chief priest said, how much money do you want? <laughs> and he said, 30 pieces of silver. It's funny, you know, uh, the high priests were savvy. They understood uh, what Judas was really after. How could they, what weakness could they take advantage of to get one of Jesus in a circle to betray him? And for Judas, it was definitely money. And that's what they used. So he had already um, made the decisions to put him in this position, but this was the final one. And at that instant, Judas agreed to be the willing instrument of Satan, the willing instrument of Satan. It didn't happen to him by surprise. It didn't happen to him, you know, despite him fighting it. No, he, he was the willing instrument of Satan. So Satan entered into him. And as Jesus would say, it would have been better for Judas had he not been born. Of course, it would have been better if he had not been born. I mean, I mean, first, for one thing, he, he wouldn't go down in history as the one that betrayed Jesus, for one thing. But for a second thing is, this also sealed the deal for him to be going to the lake of fire. Okay, so it would have been better for him had he not been born. So now there's no turning back. Absolutely no turning back. The final the final plea from Jesus had been rejected. The final decision to go ahead with the plan had already happened. Satan had already entered into him. So now Jesus tells him to act quickly. Now that Judas was beyond the point of no return, any delay now would only serve to keep Jesus from his hour of glory. In other words, the die was cast, and he understood now that let's get this ball rolling because now this will lead to my glorification. Now for Jesus, his glorification was actually going to the cross and dying. It's something that, that in our, to our human understanding makes no sense. To us to give somebody glory is an indication of, of somebody being raised up and being, and being praised. And the idea is what, that, they would be, that it would be a moment of great joy to them. But by the way, which it was. Because, you know, in the book of Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He would, in chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray to the Father, and he's going to say, now is the time, glorify me, and and, I, and in turn, you'll be glorified. Talking about this death on the cross. So Jesus asks him to go quickly. Because, again, any delay only served to keep Jesus from that hour, the hour of glory. His hour of glory. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Jesus is there in the upper room. He is celebrating a great Jewish feast. It's now a time of joy because they were released from captivity. And yet he's troubled in spirit. He understood that he had a baptism to undergo and he wanted it to be accomplished. Again, that's what Luke 12:50 says. 
But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. So ultimately, the the fact that he was um, greatly moved and, and, and distressed at the Last Supper pointed to this because he understood that what was going to happen now, in his humanity. You, you have to understand that it was it was a dreadful destiny that anyone would take a look at it and, and recoil at. I don't want to have to go through with that. Right. By the way, I want you to notice the word baptism. Now, a lot of people say that every time you see baptism in the Bible, it means water baptism. Well, if that's true. Then Jesus was distressed until he was baptized. But of course, that makes absolutely no sense. See, baptism is just an identification, right? To be entered into and identified. And Jesus on the cross entered into and was identified with our sins. And that's the baptism that's in view here. He wants to accomplish that. He knows that once he does that, he will speak those words. It is finished. And he wants to get to that finish line. So Judas goes out from the presence of the Lord, much like Cain did. In the book of Genesis, right? Cain also went out from the presence of the Lord. And then at that point, John says it was night. It was night. Now, at first glance, when you're following this and Jesus is now saying what you do, do quickly. And then Judas immediately leaves and it was night. I mean, you can see that in the natural realm of saying, well, of course, you know, he went out. It was after sundown and it was night. But actually, there's way more going on than the than the physical part of that, than the real, the, the literal um, night that he was speaking to. So, again, at first it looks at the literal darkness. It, we see it as literal darkness. And perhaps it does. Perhaps that's part of it here. But I got to tell you something. Passover was celebrated during a full moon. It was celebrated, celebrated during the full moon. It's in the book of Numbers. So the fact is, it wasn't that dark out. I mean, if you've you ever been outside in a full moon, you know, that's the most light at night that you have. No, the darkness here is much more than physical. The darkness is spiritual darkness on several, several respects. As we've seen in the Gospel of John, John's referred to spiritual darkness many times in the Gospel. For example, please turn to John chapter 9, verse 4. John chapter 9, verse 4. I mean, these kind of things, I think, are pretty obvious when somebody's been reading the Gospel from the very beginning. Because you would have, we have, would have heard Jesus again and again talk about him as the light of the world, not to remain in darkness. It's a shame that people don't do that. They kind of enter into verse small passages and then they come out again. And when you do that, you miss some of the meaning, sometimes a lot of the meaning. So the, the discipline that it takes that we have actually embarked on is for the purpose of making these things come alive. So we can see things that we wouldn't have seen if we hadn't gone verse by verse from the very beginning of the Gospel of John. John 9, 4. Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is when he, right before, he is going to heal the man who was born blind. That works on the same two levels, by the way. 
you have physical blindness, and then you have spiritual blindness. The man born blind had physical blindness. He did not have spiritual blindness. However, the Pharisees, who could see, had the great spiritual darkness. And that was, of course, far worse. As Jesus would say another time, how great is your darkness when you think you're in the light? That is the worst place you want to be, is to think you got it all together. You know, in the case of the Pharisees, they thought, you know what? We are the descendants of Moses. We know the law better than anybody else. We practice it better than anybody else. If anybody's in the light, we're in the light. When in fact, they were in great, great darkness. The same thing, Paul will tell, would say the same thing. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet he realized at the moment, and he, and he was, pers- think about it, he was persecuting people, had no qualms about it. Why? Because he thought he was in the light, right? Be very careful, either whether it's you or anybody else, when somebody has a superiority complex, okay? When somebody thinks they're better than somebody else. Or when somebody thinks that another group of people are evil and they're and these people are good, people are capable of anything when they're in that position. If they think that I'm all goodness and you're all evil, you're capable of anything. After all, if someone's totally evil, let's just get rid of them, right? Yeah. So that's an application that we have to be concerned. Never get to the point where you think that you're so holy and somebody else is so evil because that's a dangerous place to be. I mean, we can go through history time and time again, whether it's the Catholic Church during the Inquisition or whether it's Hitler in World War II. If you get to that point where you put yourself above another group and dehumanize them, you're capable of anything. Never get in that position. Never put yourself in that position. And if somebody's in that position putting it on you, run away. <laughs> run away because things could get really ugly. John chapter 9, verse 4. We must work the works. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, but he's about to heal the man born blind. We must work the works of him who sent me. And of course, Jesus said that often talking about his father. He sent me. I send you is what he, what he just said in chapter 13 to his disciples. We must work the works of him who sent me. Notice this. As long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, maybe the disciples at that point took that literally. Well, I guess we got to do what we got to do in the daytime today. Because, you know, after it gets dark, there was no electricity, no streetlights, then we can't work anymore. <laughs> but that was not at all what Jesus was saying. We studied this. He's saying, listen, while I am the, on the world, in the world, I am the light of the world. But night is coming when I will no longer be having the public ministry to the Jews when I when as a matter of fact I will leave and you guys will scatter okay that was the darkness that was the night while I am in the world I am light to the world over and over again in this gospel of John Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world so when the light goes out it's nighttime when Jesus goes out it's nighttime When somebody irrevocably turns their back and says, I'm leaving Jesus forever, they went into the night. That's that's what, again, by reading along and seeing how darkness and light are a major, major uh, symbol, major, major reflection of a spiritual reality, it's clear what he's talking about, what John talks about when he says it was night. Please turn to John chapter 8, verse 12. 
John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now here, darkness and and light, again, are not physical, they're spiritual. He who believes in Jesus will no longer be in the darkness. They will have the light of life. In the book of Ephesians, we are told that we believe in Jesus Christ. We are children of light. We We have the light in us. We have the light of life. On the other hand, there are those who walk in the darkness. Now, darkness here is the rejection of Christ. Darkness. So when when you see the darkness in the Gospel of John and the letters of John, it's talking about rejection of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the consequences of that. All right, let's go back to our passage in John chapter 12, verse 35. No, that's not our passage. (laughs) This is another passage I want you to see. The buildup of the of the pictures of light and darkness in this gospel. Here's another one. John chapter 12, verse 35. John 12, 35. Talking to the Jewish people now. This is the remember, this is the last moments of his public ministry to the Jews. And he says this for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. So that darkness will not overtake you. I mean, you could picture this as Jesus saying it to Judas. And maybe he did because it, it perfectly fits the situation that Judas was in. He, he didn't walk while he had the light. He didn't decide, you know what, I'm going to put aside the money and the fame or whatever and the approval of the chief priests. I'm going to go back to Jesus side. He didn't do that. He didn't walk while he had the light. What happens? Darkness overtook him. Walk while you have the light, Jesus, so that the darkness will not overtake you. This is also um, a great evangelistic passage, right? Jesus is the light of the world. While you are here, you believe in the light, you will become sons of light, and the darkness will not overtake you. Again, walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Judas never believed in the light. And once he had decided that he was going to go through with his awful plan and and Satan entered into him, the state of his soul, his very soul, was night. It was, in other words, impenetrable spiritual darkness. Think about that. There's no more awful place to be than to have inside your soul, a soul that is completely darkness and, and nothing can penetrate it anymore. You know, when you see the expression hardened hearts, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that, that you're not letting any light, any of the truth of God's word into your heart. Now, thankfully, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when unbelievers, unbelievers can't help being in this place. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word of God and their willingness to believe the gospel, 
then that then that darkness can be dispelled in an instant. Okay, but for Judas, he had already made the decision the over and over again, and then the final one that he was never going to turn to Jesus, and that meant that his soul now was one of impenetrable spiritual darkness. There was no light in Judas, and it was night. Look at John chapter 11, verse 9. John chapter 11, verse 9. Again, I want you to look at this from a spiritual perspective. John 11, 9. Once again, it's Jesus and the disciples. Now they don't want him to go to Bethany where, where, um, thank you, where Lazarus, right, had died. They didn't want him to go, not because they didn't want him to raise Lazarus from the dead, but because he was going back to Judea. He was safely on the other side of the Jordan. Now he's going back to Judea, putting his life at risk. So Jesus says this to them. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. That was the night that Judas stepped into. He had no light in him. He was now a person of the darkness. Once Judas stepped into the night, by the way, it wasn't just him. It also, there would be a power of darkness that would come upon the whole situation, the whole situation. I just want to show you a passage that says this. Look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter In just a, just a little time after Judas steps out into the night, he would then return in the Garden of Gethsemane and he would have chief priests and officers and elders that would come. He would have probably 500 or 600 soldiers with him. By the way, those were the people that when, when Jesus said, who you who are you after? And, and, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Right? And they were all flattened. That's quite a scene to think of 500 soldiers ready to pounce on a man. And then he speaks one word and they all fall to the ground. That's power. Anyway, Luke chapter 22, verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against the robber? Well, I was with you daily in the temple. You did not lay hands on me. But notice this hour and the power of darkness are yours. In other words, it wasn't just Judas. It was also the, the chief priests and the officers and the elders who are now bringing on the hour of darkness. They had the power of darkness. They were motivated by evil, by jealousy. They were motivated in some, in some respect or other, definitely by the kingdom of darkness and perhaps even by Satan. We don't know. At this moment, and they would take him they would try him three times illegally. They would turn him over to Pilate. And then Pilate would find him innocent, 
But because he was a coward and the mob wanted to put Jesus to death, he went ahead with it anyway. Jesus would go to the cross. He would die. By the way, when he was on the cross in the second three hours, when he was bearing the sins of the world, it says the whole, we don't know how far, the whole where he was at the cross and probably across Judea was complete darkness. It was complete darkness. Why? Because the darkness of sin. You see, darkness is, as an image always talks is always referring to in the Bible, ultimately, some form of evil and rejection of Jesus Christ. And so so there would be the darkness once again when Jesus is on the cross. Then he would go to the grave. And then he would rise from the dead. So the power of darkness had its hour. But soon after that, the light shines again. And from that time forward, darkness would cower in fear. That's why we never should be afraid of, of our enemies. We should never be afraid even of the prince of the power of this world. We should never be afraid. Why? Because the light is now shining. And when light shines in the darkness, darkness goes away. And that's, that's why we resist him and he will flee, Satan. That is why we put on the full armor of God so that we may be able to resist in the evil day. Just a couple more passages. Please go to Acts chapter 26, verse 22. This is, of course, the, the Apostle Paul. He was another one who was sent out by Jesus to preach, in his case, to the Gentiles. But here he, he is um, addressing powerful leader, and he says this. So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That Christ was to suffer, and that by reason, notice, of his resurrection from the dead, the light would shine, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Here the light is the truth, the good news of the gospel. But again, we have this, we have this imagery of light and that the, and the darkness would be dispelled. That, that, that the resurrection released an incredible power and is the power of the gospel, the word of the cross, to be able to go to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, and whoever believed in that gospel would never perish. This morning, if you are a believer in Christ, realize that he has brought you out of darkness, and he's brought you into his own marvelous light. That's Peter. He has brought you out of the darkness into his own marvelous light. You are now a child of light. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Ephesians 5, 8. For you, you, me, were formerly darkness. In other words, we're no better 
we 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 at one point in time, many for many maybe for many years in some of our cases, were darkness. By the way, it doesn't say just in the darkness. It says you were darkness, which is a pretty pretty um, intense thing to say or to write. You were formerly darkness, but now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are light. You are light. You were a darkness. You are light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. We are light. We are children of light. We have been freed from darkness. We are the children, adopted children of God. That will never change. But now we're called to walk as children of light. We are called to live as children of light. We are called to take advantage of the freedom that we have, not to not for our own selfish lusts, but to serve others. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. That's the fruit of the light. That's the fruit of the gospel. Goodness and righteousness and truth. And we are what? To learn, that's why we come and study the word of God, what is pleasing to the Lord. There are also, of course, unfruitful deeds of darkness. We're not in the darkness. We're no longer darkness. But unfortunately, we can still participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That just means that we still have the flesh. We can still commit sins, although our sins have been forgiven and God has declared us righteous. But rather than participate now, we should expose them. We should expose that, those deeds for what they are. And that's the mission. And that's, that is our legacy. And that is our challenge is to, to live according to the fact that, that we have been, that we are, that the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the light is goodness and righteousness and truth. And not only are we to, uh, to be rejoicing that we have righteousness and that we have the truth, but it also means that we are to use the goodness and use the righteousness and use the truth, that we are to share in that. If you have fruit, you want to share it. So the goodness that God has given you in the, in the spirit, share. The righteousness that you have, share it. What does that mean? It means to stand up for righteousness. It also means to give somebody else the opportunity to have God declare them righteous by preaching the gospel. And then live that way. Do what's pleasing to the Lord. Don't just learn it, as it says here, but also do it. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us now to take advantage of the freedom that we live in. We ask you, Father, to allow us to, in our freedom, to serve one another. We know you will, but have the Holy Spirit motivate us to do so. We thank you that with the word dwelling deeply in our hearts, we know we are more likely to now. We know that we have the ability to. We know that you've enlightened us with the truth. Help us to put those things into practice in our daily lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, Bible study Thursday. You probably could recite this. Probably I could just say, okay, now, what is the final announcement? But again, please keep us in prayer as we uh, get the new facility ready. Please keep one another in prayer. 
we're all in need of prayer in different areas. Make sure you don't forget to, to go to the Father, not only for your own needs, but also for the needs of the, of the body of Christ. Okay, and with that, you are dismissed. It's the end of the service. Enjoy the day.